0: Hello and welcome to a special edition of the I Want to Know podcast. I'm Josh Spector. I am your host. I also write the For the Interested newsletter, which you can check out at fortheinterested.com slash subscribe. Sign up for free. You'll get a weekly dose of proven strategies to grow your audience and business. Now, typically on this show, as you know, if you've been listening, I bring on a guest who asks me three questions about audience and business growth. We discuss them each for 10 minutes, and everyone, hopefully, learns something. But today will be totally different, because as hard as it is to believe, this is the 26th episode of this show. Time flies when you're recording a podcast every week. To celebrate the first 25 episodes we've recorded, I thought it would be fun to do something special. So here's what I came up with. I went through all the episodes we've done so far and pulled a valuable, actionable one to two minute clip from each. What you're about to hear is a clip from each episode with a quick intro from me before each one. It's a great way to learn a ton in a short amount of time, see what you may have missed if you just discovered this podcast recently, or just refresh your memory about that thing you wanted to do but haven't gotten around to doing yet. Okay, one final thing before we jump into the clips. If you find my podcast helpful, please do me a favor. Tell people you know about it. This episode, available on every podcast platform or my YouTube channel, is the perfect way to introduce people to this show. Send them the link, post it on your social media accounts, share it in your newsletter, mention it in your podcast, scream about it from the rooftop of your house, whatever you want to do. Just please help spread the word. Leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Whatever you choose to do to help tell people about it, I truly appreciate it. Your support will help the show grow and continue to get even better as we move forward. So with that out of the way, let's get to the good stuff. Here is the best of the I Want to Know podcast so far. Episode one of this podcast was basically me talking about what I hoped the show would become. If you're curious to hear how I thought about things pre-launch, it's worth going back to check out. But it doesn't make for the best clip, so I'm not going to pull a clip for this best of episode. Instead, let's start with episode two. In that episode, photo organizer Marcy Brennan asked me how to get her clients to sign up for a recurring offer. As we got into it, I realized she was making one crucial mistake that was holding her back. I said something in this episode that literally made her say, wow, and oh my God, here it is. The first issue that I see is they're hiring you to fix a problem they have initially. You come in, you fix their problem. They're like, oh my God, this is amazing. My problem's gone. Now you're trying to sell them for a problem that they don't have. And in their mind, they think, I'm not going to go back to that, right? I'm going to be fine, right? It's almost like, you know, the this is a weird analogy, but like the person that loses weight or that gets in shape assumes they've turned the corner. They don't assume they're going to go back and put on more weight, Correct, right? They just paid you thousands of dollars or whatever. My photos are organized great. Like they're not in the mindset of I'm going to have another problem. And they actively don't want to believe that because it's going to make them feel like I just paid for this and this, I'm just going to wind up back where I was. Right. So that's a hard sell timing wise. And it's almost undercutting the victory moment that you've just given them. Wow. So my advice would be is I would not be trying to sell that at the end of sort of the initial service, I would sell it before they hire you as an upgraded package when, they, when everything's a mess. Oh my God. <laughs> which also might help them buy initially because I am sure there are people that are like, I'm gonna pay her, she's gonna organize everything and I'm just gonna go back to my usual ways and this is gonna be a mess. So why am I going to pay if I'm not going to maintain it? But for you to come in and say, here's how much it costs. And you're going to forever be organized because you can pay up front for as many yearly maintenance things as you want. And in that state, the person might go, I'll take five years of maintenance. And you could even give them a discount on the maintenance up front. So now they're buying, I'm going to be organized and would be organized for the next five years for a little bit more money. When you try to sell something, do you feel like you're asking someone to do something for you or offering to do something for them? In this clip from episode three, I broke down the difference for Nick Heath. I really think it's the most important mindset shift you need to make. If you want to sell to your audience. Here's what I had to say. The key phrase you said was something along the lines of like, I never ask for anything, right? Or I'm the guy that never asked for anything. You are not asking for something. You are offering something.
1: Ah, yeah. Okay. It's a good point. It's
0: totally different. And this is true of all selling, mm. right? You are not asking them to do you a favor. This is one of the reasons I don't like, in general, donation models that you see like creators do. Please support me on Patreon. I like selling because a donation model, the please support me suggests that what you are offering is not valuable to them, you're just asking them to do you a favor. (laughs) You're not asking anyone to do you a favor. You're saying, I've got this other thing here that's different, that's bigger, that's whatever, that's more specific. I'm offering you this thing that's valuable, more valuable than what you'll pay for it. If you want it, buy it, great. If you don't, that's cool too. I'm still over here giving you the free stop. When you feel like you are asking people to do something for you, That leads to you feeling insecure. That leads to you feeling cheesy. In your mind, they're doing you a favor. People that buy from me are not doing me a favor. I'm doing them a favor. In episode four, Fab Giovanetti set me up to go on one of my favorite rants. It's a lesson I learned the hard way, but one many people who work for themselves struggle to learn. Here it is. What's interesting is people go into business for themselves a lot of times because they want control and freedom. I don't want to have to answer to a boss. I want to structure my day how I want to structure it. I want to work on the projects that I want to work on. All of that stuff, right? That's a big part of why they go into it. But then once they go into it, they don't take advantage of any of those things. And in a lot of times, they actually punt a lot of the, they wind up with less control than they had working for someone or working for a company, right? And the reason they don't take advantage of it is because they don't feel like they can. They go from having one boss to, let's say they're working with clients, they go from having one boss to having five clients who they treat like those five clients are their boss. So what winds up happening is they start to feel pressure to make things work on their own, which leads them to give up even more control. Oh, but if I I want clients or I need clients, I have to do calls when the client's ready. And I have to, you know, I can't, I have to take any job that comes my way because what if another job doesn't, you know, what if there's not another job around the corner? And, and it's just, it's fascinating. Here's a question worth asking yourself. Have the people you're learning from actually done the things they're telling you to do? In this clip from episode five with Amanda Natividad, I talk about the difference between primary and secondary sources of expertise. Have a listen. Anyone can go out and write a blog post, do a, post, a video telling you how to do something. Here's how to grow your audience. Here's how to grow your business. Here's how to write a landing page. Here's how to sell more stuff. Here's how to, you know, do whatever. If you apply that primary source concept to that. It's interesting to look at that and go. Well, are they sharing advice because they've actually done it and they're sharing what they actually did, or they just read a bunch of people who said, "Here's what they did," and they're regurgitating that? And it's an interesting thing to think about because you see so much of it in this sort of creator economy expert space. And I'm a big fan of curation. I think all of that is valuable. But it is interesting to consider when you're when you're consuming advice from people. Are they a primary source, essentially meaning have they actually done it, right? Are they telling me how they actually got a thousand subscribers or are they say or are they just saying this is in general how you do it? They're a secondary source in that version versus a primary source. Here's something you may not know. The single biggest driver of traffic to my podcast is my For the Interested newsletter. In episode six, I told Dylan Schmidt how to use a newsletter to grow your podcast. And it starts with not just using your newsletter to promote your podcast. Here's what I mean. So here's how I think about using a newsletter to grow a podcast. The first piece of advice is the newsletter should not be about your podcast. To some people, this seems really counterintuitive. To other people, it seems sort of obvious, but I think what most podcasters do when they hear start a newsletter or start an email list, the obvious thing to do is it's about the show. If it's the digital podcaster, podcast, it's the digital podcaster, podcast, newsletter, right? And I think the the to me, one of the biggest values and the reason you're doing a newsletter to begin with is as a way to grow your audience and attract new people to your show. But if the newsletter is about the show. The only people who care about it are the people who already listen to and know and like your show. So what you want to do is instead, you want to create a newsletter and title the newsletter in a way that it's going to attract people who don't know your show exists, right? Now, you have some nice overlap because digital podcaster is sort of the name is the niche a little bit. But you'll see like a lot of times people are like, oh, it's the Stephen Bob show. And it's like, you don't want the Stephen Bob show newsletter. Because the only people that care about that are already listening to The Steve and Bob Show, right? So in your case, I would recommend a, you want to start a newsletter that is essentially going to provide the same value to the same audience that your podcast does, but in a different format, in a different way. Speaking of newsletters, in episode seven, I told Larry Cornett one of the cold, hard truths about the newsletter game. It's not enough to just get people to subscribe to your newsletter. Here's what I mean. One of the things that I think people don't think about a lot when it comes to newsletters is they think that it's almost binary, right? That it's like, I want to get someone to subscribe or not. But I actually think that getting people to subscribe, what you're really trying to do is I want to be one of people's top three or five, 10 Mm -hmm. at most, but even that is high, right? I want to be one of their favorite newsletters, not just one of the many that they subscribe to. I want to be one of the ones that they're afraid to miss, that they're going to open. So Mm -hmm. I would look at it from that standpoint, because it's not just that they subscribe to you. Ultimately, you're trying to be that important or that I don't want to miss Larry's stuff versus the other of worrying about people. Because I would argue that in most cases, not all, but in most cases, if someone's like, I don't need to subscribe. I'll, I will follow Larry on social and I'll see it if I see it. I would right. argue that the actual issue is they're not connected enough to the newsletter, mm-hmm. right? Or that mm-hmm. they're not, they don't love it yeah. enough. They just sort of like it. Episode eight featured my first conversation about how to write effective ads, especially on Facebook and Instagram. In this clip, I tell baby sleep consultant Susie Menkes how to write copy in her ads that will be more likely to get her clients. Have a listen. The best thing or the most powerful thing about Facebook ads and Instagram ads, for that matter, is the ability to hyper target and the ability to match your image and copy to that hyper targeting. It takes a little more time to set up, but you can also sort of experiment with it. But this is. Again, I think a thing a lot of people don't do. So if you were to test two ads, let's say you were going for local clients in LA, and this is a little different than what you're doing, but just hypothetically, right? One ad was, you know, forget what the copy is for a second, but like, hey, LA moms, you know, need some help getting your baby to sleep, you know, check out my service, right? Check out my course, you know, book me, whatever. And the photo was a sort of generic stock photo of baby and mom sleeping or whatever, That's one ad you're targeting moms in Los Angeles. The other ad is targeting moms in Beverly Hills. And it's a mom on Rodeo Drive in front of the Beverly Hills sign. Something iconic Beverly Hills. Something in this person's neighborhood. And you're only targeting Beverly Hills. That is going to way outperform the LA General ad. Interesting. So one of the tricks is matching copy and image to exactly who you're talking to. I don't talk a lot about the comedy business in my podcast, but I've applied a lot of what I learned working in that industry to what I do now. For example, check out this clip from episode nine where I tell Jonathan Santiago how what I learned about launching a stand-up comedy show influenced how I launched my newsletter ads business and sold out my ads every week. Check it out. If you're launching, let's say, a new like stand-up comedy show and you think that you can sell 70 tickets on a regular basis or whatever. And your options are a theater that holds a hundred or a theater that holds 50. Most people would go, the instinct would be, I'm going to go theater that holds a hundred because I don't, I can sell 70. So I want to make as much money as I can. I want to be able to sell Mm seventy. I don't want to take a 50 theater that's a little too small and then only sell 50. But the truth is you want the 50 because what you're doing when you're launching a new show or launching something like that is you want it to seem like a hot property. You want the buzz around it. So having 20 people a week who can't get tickets, all of a sudden everyone's like, have you seen that new show? That's like a hot new thing. And that builds it. It creates a perception of a sort of hot product even though you only sold 50 tickets instead of 70 in the bigger place. If you sell 70, everyone's like, oh, you can always get tickets to that show. There's 30 empty seats. No one's talking about, oh, did you see that new hot show? Even though you sold more tickets than the smaller venue. Episode 10 has been one of my most popular episodes, and I'm not surprised. In a special Flip the Script episode, Justin Welsh came on as my guest, and I got him to share the content system that powers his empathy. Here's a quick excerpt of what he
2: had to say. And so what I started to do was create a system where each newsletter can be pushed through six to 10 different lenses. And those lenses are things like a story, an observation, a contrarian take, a listicle, the past versus the present, the present versus the future, uh, an analysis, a teardown. There are so many different ways that you can take what you've just written, this long form piece of content, push it through different lenses and learn how to say the same thing a thousand different ways. And when you can say the same thing a thousand different ways, you can create a bunch of different content. Plus, you're also helping people who learn different ways, right? Some people like motivational stories, other people like step-by-step educational guides. So by pushing the newsletter topic through that lens, out the end or out the, out the bottom comes a bunch of different unique content. Well, okay. That's 20 different ways to create 20 different pieces of content. What about the Twitter thread? Well, instead of writing a brand new Twitter thread, why not take the newsletter, copy and paste it, chunk it down, give it headers and subheaders, and turn the entire written piece of content into its own Twitter thread. So then it's like, I push it through that lens. Carousel, chop it up, download it into a bunch of PDFs, put it on LinkedIn, let people go through the Twitter thread as a carousel. It's the same thing as the Twitter thread, just chopped up into a different format And distributed onto a different platform. So that's like how I create all these different pieces of content off of one idea.
0: Comedian Garg is hilarious, and she's going to be a huge star. But that's not why you should listen to episode 11 in which she appears. Listen to it because I gave her a bunch of advice about how to improve her connection to her audience and monetize it, including this bit about how to approach brands who may want to pay to reach your audience. So for example, you have about, I think like 500,000 followers on TikTok, you have videos regular, and obviously some videos do better than others and et cetera, and you can't guarantee stuff necessarily, but you regularly have videos that break a hundred thousand views, right? So if I'm a brand or a business or somebody who's coming to you, the question is what would that brand or business have to spend to reach that audience on their own? And the truth is, they would have to do a bunch of things, right? They'd have to create a video. They'd have to pay to promote it to reach that audience. And they're just doing it cold. They don't even have you have an audience that trusts you. There's a value to that endorsement. So when someone comes to you and says, hey, that seems like a lot of money, as opposed to saying, yeah, but it takes me a lot of time to do this stuff. And this is hard, which they don't really care about. You instead want to talk about it from their point. You go, I understand it seems like a lot of money. But you're going to reach X amount of people. Like if you didn't hire me and you wanted to accomplish this result, here's what you would have to do. And it would be very expensive. And you don't even know necessarily if, you know, how it would work or if it would work or whatever. You want to make the case that hiring you is actually a very cost-effective way to get what they want. In episode 12, I talked to Mark Modesti about how to grow a successful business as a creative entrepreneur. In this clip, I explained to him a way to get additional clients when you don't have a large audience yourself. Find someone who has some expertise and maybe has what I call business overflow. So they have more potential clients coming in than they can handle. And or they charge $10,000 and they have a lot of people that only have a $2,000 budget. And right now they're just basically turning those people down. I could go to that person and say, okay, you have whatever method you have. What if you can sort of teach me, show me how to do your method. And I'll take all those people that can only afford $2,000 and I'll give you $1,000. You don't have to do any work. Just filter me your extra clients and leads. You'll get extra money. And for me, as opposed to me having to go find new clients, I'm able to sort of just tap into someone who's already done a lot of the marketing work. I had a client who's a career transition coach and she was telling me that right now the majority of her clients are coming from her own coach who charges more and can only work with so many people. And so she sort of trained her and said, I'll give you all the overflow. And she's built a whole business just on doing that. If you're watching the video version of this podcast, you'll hopefully notice that the quality of my video has gotten progressively better throughout these clips. Not much better, but at least a little better. That's because of episode 13, where home studio expert Kevin Shen came on and told me everything I needed to know to look better on camera. I've only implemented a fraction of his advice so far, but that's on me. What he shared is brilliant. Here's a clip of him talking about how to be strategic about the way you present yourself on video. And then with video online, like sure,
2: content is super important, but in order to grow anything, we have to get the attention of a stranger who's never met us before. And the only way they can really figure out, you know, like who is this person in that split second as they're scrolling through things
3: is to rely on these kinds of signals. And so thinking through what signals do you want to send, right? Yeah. So for instance, if you wear a suit in your videos, it's maybe you want to appear older, you want to appear more,
2: I want to say closed off, but more professional, right? Mm-hmm. If you wear something that's more like a t-shirt, like you have, I felt super comfortable here, you know, talking with you because you're setting the tone, you're
0: signaling. Right right? This is like a friend dynamic. And so really it comes to kind of like that self-awareness of what you want to signal. And then from there, we can build out for you, like what that looks like. If you have any interest in newsletters, then you should definitely check out episode 14, where I talked all things newsletter with Dylan Reddick. In this clip, I explain why I think everyone should have a newsletter and why I think most people misunderstand what a newsletter actually is or can be. I think it's important to also say here that a newsletter doesn't have to be what you think it is or what a lot of people think it is. And I think that's where a lot of times when I say, oh, everyone should have a newsletter, they go, why do I need a newsletter? I just make videos or I just do mm-hmm. this or I sell widgets or you know, whatever. And I think it's understanding my definition in some ways of what a newsletter is, is different than a lot of people's, especially people that are hesitant to start them, different than their assumptions. A newsletter does not have to be long. As you know, I have a daily newsletter that is literally, I think the one I sent a couple of days ago was two words. When you start thinking about what I really mean is you want a consistent email that you're able to deliver value to people. And when I say everyone should start a newsletter, it doesn't mean everyone should write this long form essay thing. Right. What I mean is everyone should be thinking about how do I use email to deliver whatever value it is that I have to deliver to people. Mm -hmm. So in that context, I think it's very different. That's part of why I don't think there's really an excuse not to do it. In episode 15, Roger Nairn asked me about how to avoid burning. And it's an important subject that I probably don't talk about enough. For that matter, none of us do. In this clip, I share one of the best policies I've created for myself in recent years and how it's helped me avoid taking on too much stuff. Check it out. But a good policy that when I start something new, I stop something old. And this actually applies not only to sort of big projects, but it can also apply to things as small as meetings. So every time you agree to a recurring meeting, one other recurring meeting should go away. As opposed to, we always say yes and add stuff, and then you have too much stuff. So the other thing that this does, especially when you when you talk about projects, is it forces you to really consider, okay, let's say I wanna start this newsletter or whatever. Well, if I have to stop something that's taking up relatively equal time, do I wanna start it bad enough that I'm willing to get rid of this other thing? Mm -hmm. So for me, as the kind of person who would start lots of stuff all the time, it also creates a check and this goes directly, this start something new, stop something old, directly fits in with you can say yes to anything, but not yes to everything. So now I'm making choices on each project, which helps prevent burnout and taking too much, but also makes you way more deliberate in where you choose to invest your time. Episode 16 was another flip-the-script episode. But this time, I was lucky enough to have creativity guru and founder of the legendary Uncabaret comedy show, Beth Lapidus, come on and share her wisdom about the creative process. In this excerpt, she reveals the most influential things she learned from Michael Patrick King, the creator of Sex and the City. Here it is.
3: Michael Patrick King, the writer, director, creator of Sex and the City and The Comeback, etc., he once just said to me, years ago follow the green lights it's so simple um Mm -hmm. and i use it over and over and over again and what does that that is that can mean a green light sure from a network but it can also mean the green light of your own curiosity i love mystery and magic and all that stuff and Mm. synchronicities and you're starting to work on something and then you see the word everywhere you go people discount that kind of stuff you're an artist or creator, at least, even if you, you know, you're know you a creative business person, you're in the world of creativity and you want to remember that you're, co I hope this isn't too woo-woo, but you're co-creating this with mm-hmm. the force of creativity. You are part of the creative web of the whole world. So if you start to see where the green lights are coming in and really look for the green lights rather than look for the stop signs.
0: In episode 17, I tackled how to grow a podcast from a number of different angles with Chris Culp. In this clip, I gave him some suggestions about how to write ads that will get people to actually check out your podcast. Here's what I had to say. I think it's really important to aim for clarity, not cleverness. So when people are seeing your ads, and especially you only have 120 characters or so, they need to really understand what it is that you're talking about, what the value is for them and what you actually want them to do in a very concise way. And I think a lot of times people fall in the habit of, oh, this is really creative and this is really clever, but you have a context for what you're promoting that those people don't have. So Mm. that's not really gonna work. You have to assume they have no idea what you're talking about or what you're doing. Okay. Let's talk about book publishing. If you have any interest in writing a book, I feel confident saying that episode 18 with publishing expert Jane Friedman is a must-listen. In this clip, she talks about how to figure out if now is even the right time for you to write a book or not. Check it out.
1: Is a book my next best step at this moment in time? I think that particularly applies to nonfiction authors more so than fiction. With nonfiction folks, often a book is not their next best step. A book performs well when it acts like an exclamation point at the end of a very long conversation you've been having with your readership or potential readership, a conversation you've probably been having for years. So I recommend undertaking a book when it appears blatantly missing, from what you offer when people are asking for it where's the book and I don't mean family and friends who will say that every time you go out for drinks why don't you write a book ignore those people they don't know how right. much work it is They say pe- you're a
0: writer <laughs> but where's your book <laughs> yeah, hey, I, those people that. are
1: terrible so the people who, who are your fans that are otherwise strangers to you and they're asking for a book that's a great sign a book is your next best step where writing and publishing a book is almost an act of service
0: They say your episodes are like your children and you should love them all equally, but screw that. Episode 19 was one of my favorites. In it, I helped KP figure out how to build his coaching business. And in this clip, I explain how you need to align your content with your eventual sales pitch. Have a listen. If you want coaching clients, part of the argument that you're making, sort of drawing a line in the sand, not in a combative way, but you're essentially saying, look, the reason people should hire me as a coach is because it's gonna be the most effective or the quickest, the easiest, the combination of, this is the best way to help you get what you want and get from point A to point B. You want to make that case in Mm -hmm. your own content, in the presentation of your coaching. It's not just, hey, I can help you in this way. It's, there's a reason that I'm choosing to help you in this way because I believe this is a more effective way than a course then reading a book, then consuming right. content, right? So you're making a case and an argument there yeah. so that it's not just, hey, I'm offering this result to these people, but there's a reason why I'm offering it in this format. Mm-hmm. And that will resonate highly with some people. Yeah, And with other people, it won't resonate at all. But that doesn't really matter because what you're trying to do is not be an okay option for lots of people, you're trying to be the perfect option for some people. It's interesting listening back to episode 20 now that the future of Twitter as a platform is a bit up in the air. In this clip from my conversation with Leo Notenboom, I explain how I think about building on rented land and growing audiences on social media platforms in general. Here's what I had to say. I never view building on a platform I don't own as the sort of hub or main goal. My main goal is never Twitter followers. I have a YouTube channel now. I want YouTube subscribers. My main goal is not YouTube subscribers. My main goal is always to build my email list and newsletter. That's the hub of what I am building. So I think for me, what I recommend, and that's the same approach I recommend for most people, it's really important that everything I'm doing is optimizing for that. So I'm gonna use Twitter, I'm gonna use YouTube, I'm gonna use some of these platforms, but ultimately, it's to drive into the stuff that I own. It's not just to build the follower count on those platforms because you are vulnerable. As a guy who had zero experience with YouTube when I launched this podcast, it was awesome to have the chance to interview a true YouTube expert in episode 21. Roberto Blake dropped a ton of specific knowledge and tactics about how to approach YouTube that blew my mind and the minds of everyone I know who has watched or listened to it. It's been one of my most popular episodes. For a taste of our conversation, here's a clip where Roberto talks about how to get started on YouTube. Commit to making 100 videos and getting better at this because at the end of a 100 video cycle, you'll know who you are, you'll know what you're about, you'll know if you even like this. You can say you gave it the old college try and that you have a body of work, and there's not a downside because the skill you get making 100 videos in a one to two year period. The skill level that you get and what you come out of from that and the ability to have done something and what you learn about writing, scripting, performing, data, analytics, video, it's still useful and applicable to other areas of life. So it's not like it was a waste of time truly if you really think about it. In episode 22, comedians Matt Ritter and Aaron Caro came on to pick my brain about how to grow their newly launched Man of the Year podcast. In this clip, I explain why I don't even view podcast episodes solely as podcasts and how to get the most value out of the time you put into recording them. Check it out. My podcast very specifically is three questions. It's super easy to chop up. So for example, the podcast that we're recording right now, we're going to sit and we're going to talk for 45 minutes or whatever this is going to be. That whole 45 minutes will be available in audio on Spotify and Apple and all that. The full thing will be available on YouTube. There will have to be three different videos of each of your individual questions available on YouTube, each titled based on that topic. So almost treating them as if they're separate content. there will also be short highlight clips on Twitter and LinkedIn, which is what I use. I don't use the other stuff. Stuff I say or you say will be turned into tweets social posts, maybe even blog posts. It might be repurposed with other episodes I do that relate to podcasts and just here's a bunch of podcast tips. Plus a bunch of this stuff will wind up on my newsletter. Some may wind up in products I sell. So while this is a podcast that I'm doing, I just think of it as a way to capture and create content It then's going everywhere. Yeah, I'd love to have people download it and listen to it, whatever. My main goal is I want them to see it, consume it, connect to it, share it, whatever. I love Twitter. So it should be no surprise that I loved having an excuse to share my best Twitter advice in the conversation I had with Jamie Northrup in episode 23. In this excerpt, I explain my take on the quantity versus quality question when it comes to what and how often to tweet. Here's what I had to say. Quantity because you need a volume of tweets because that's how you learn what works, it's how you get better, and it's how you ultimately reach more of your audience. You need quality tweets because every tweet you post is an audition. Every time you post a tweet, someone could go, I don't want to follow this guy anymore. If you post garbage that people don't engage with, they're less likely to see your future tweets. So every quote unquote bad tweet, and by bad, I mean something that people just ignore, lessens the likelihood that they're going to see your next tweet. Every tweet an right. audition, right? So the truth is you need both quantity and quality. In episode 24, productivity expert Kay High came on and gave me a look inside his brain. Figuratively, not literally. The episode is packed with wisdom from Kay, but I also managed to slip in an example of how I boosted my own productivity when it comes to driving sales of my products. Here's a look at what I did and how I did it. One of the things that I did, and it was so obvious, and this goes to your point of take some time to think, right? It was so obvious in retrospect is I set an autoresponder email. So now when someone subscribes to my newsletter, Mm -hmm. 30 days after they've subscribed, you get an email that says my one month anniversary gift to you. Mm -hmm. And they get this email and it basically says, Hey, if you want a discount on any of these products, Mm -hmm. let me know. Appreciate you being here for a month. And so that runs automatically and now it's driving sales automatically. 10 minutes maybe that it took me to create that email now ensures that everybody that comes into my newsletter after 30 days is going to at least be aware that promotion is now on autopilot. And again, all it took was coming up with the idea in 10 minutes to set it up. So five minutes of thinking and minutes of execution. And then this flywheel, probably not a massive source of revenue, yeah. but this little flywheel uh, of extra income. Yeah, and it trickles in. And I think the other thing it does for me is it removes that feeling in the back of my mind of I'm not promoting enough. At yeah. least I'm doing something. And that brings us to my most recent episode, episode 25. In that episode, I spoke with Tatiana Figarito all about ways to optimize her business, including my take on how to use lead magnets to grow your audience. Or more specifically, the biggest mistake most people make when using a lead magnet. Here's what I had to say about it. I think a big mistake people make is their attempt to make their lead magnet seem really valuable becomes really bloated. No one wants a 100-page book. No one wants a three-hour video, right? They're like, well, look how valuable it is, and I'm giving it to you just for an email address. No. Go the opposite route, make it extremely simple, actionable, and something that gives people an easy, quick win. That's the best thing you can do. They're more likely to download it to give you their email address. I'm not going to read this ebook like for, for 40 pages, but like, oh, it's a one page thing. I'll look at that. Yeah. I want to see that templates, resources, something they can use, not just information, but something they can use and do really quickly. Well there you have it. I hope you found these clips from my first 25 episodes helpful. If so, I'd love it if you tell other people you know about this podcast and share it with them. Also, if you'd ever like to be a guest on the show and come on and ask me three questions, go to joshspectercom questions to apply. I'd love to chat with you on a future episode. Thanks again for your interest, and here's to the next 25 episodes. See you next week.